Chapter 46 Continued Giribala has never sought an inaccessible solitude for her yoga practices, Lambadar Babu went on. She has lived her entire life surrounded by her family and friends. They are all well accustomed now to her strange state. Not one of them who would not be stupefied if Giribala suddenly decided to eat anything. Sister is naturally retiring, as befits a Hindu widow, but our little circle in Purulia and in Bior all know that she is literally an exceptional woman. The brother's sincerity was manifest. Our little party thanked him warmly and set out towards Biur. We stopped at a street shop for curry and luchis, attracting a swarm of urchins who gathered around to watch Mr. Wright eating with his fingers in the simple Hindu manner. Hearty appetites caused us to fortify ourselves against an afternoon which, unknown to us at the moment, was to prove fairly laborious. Our way now led east, through the sun-baked rice fields, into the Baudouin section of Bengal, on through roads lined with dense vegetation. The songs of the miners and the striped-throated bulbuls streamed out from trees with huge umbrella-like branches. A bullock cart now and then, the reeny, reeny, manju, manju squeak of its axle and iron-shod wooden wheels contrasting sharply in mind with the swish, swish of auto-tyres over the aristocratic asphalt of the cities. Dick, halt. My sudden request brought a jolting protest from the Ford. That overburdened mango tree is fairly shouting an invitation. The five of us dashed like children to the mango-strewn earth. The tree had benevolently shed its fruit as they had ripened. For many a mango is born to lie unseen, I paraphrased, and waste its sweetness on the stony ground. Nothing like this in America, Swamiji, eh? laughed Sailesh Mazumdar, one of my Bengali students. No, I admitted, filled with mangoes and contentment. How I have missed this fruit in the West. A Hindu's heaven without mangoes is inconceivable. I hurled a rock and downed a proud beauty from the highest limb. Dick, I asked, between bites of ambrosia, warm in the tropical sun. Are all the cameras in the car? Yes, sir, in the baggage compartment. If Giribala proves to be a true saint, I want to write about her in the West. A Hindu yogini with such inspiring powers should not live and die unknown, like most of these mangoes. Half an hour later, I was still strolling in the sylvan peace. Sir, Mr. Wright remarked, we should reach Giribala before the sun sets. To have enough light for photographs, he added with a grin, Westerners are a sceptical lot. We can't expect them to believe in the lady without any pictures. This bit of wisdom was indisputable. I turned my back on temptation and re-entered the car. You're right, Dick, I sighed as we sped along. I sacrificed the mango paradise on the altar of Western realism. Photographs we must have. The road became more and more sickly. Wrinkles of ruts, boils of hardened clay, the sad infirmities of old age. Our group dismounted occasionally to allow Mr. Wright more easily to manoeuvre the ford, which the rest of us pushed from behind. Lambador Babu spoke truly, Salesh acknowledged. The car is not carrying us, we are carrying the car. 
our climb-in, climb-out auto-tedium was beguiled ever and anon by the appearance of a village, each one a scene of quaint simplicity. Our way twisted and turned through groves of palms among ancient, unspoiled villages nestling in the forest shade. Mr. Wright recorded in his travel diary, under the date of May 5th, 1936, very fascinating are these clusters of thatched mud huts, decorated with one of the names of God on the door, many small naked children innocently playing about, pausing to stare or run wildly from this big black bullockless carriage, tearing madly through their village. The women merely peep from the shadows, while the men lazily loll beneath the trees along the roadside, curious beneath their nonchalance. In one place, all the villagers were gaily bathing in the large tank, in their garments, changing by draping dry cloths around their bodies, dropping the wet ones. Women bearing water to their homes in huge brass jars. The road led us a merry chase over mountain ridge. We bounced and tossed, dipped into small streams, detoured around an unfinished causeway, slithered across dry, sandy riverbeds, and finally, at about 5 p.m., we were close to our destination, Biur. This small village in the interior of Bankura district, hidden in the protection of dense foliage, is unapproachable by travellers in the rainy season, we were told. Then the streams are raging torrents, and the roads, serpent-like, spit mud venom. Asking for a guide among a group of worshippers on their way home from a temple prayer, out in the lonely field, we were besieged by a dozen scantily clad lads who clambered on the sides of the car, eager to conduct us to Giribala. The road led toward a grove of date palms, sheltering a group of mud huts, but before we had reached it, the ford was momentarily tipped at a dangerous angle, tossed up and dropped down. The narrow trail led around trees and tanks, over ridges, into holes and deep ruts. The car became anchored on a clump of bushes, then grounded on a hillock, requiring a lift of earth clods. On we proceeded, slowly and carefully. Suddenly the way was stopped by a mass of brush in the middle of the cart track, necessitating a detour down a precipitous ledge into a dry tank, rescue from which demanded some scraping, adzing and shoveling. Again and again the road seemed impassable, but the pilgrimage must go on. Obliging lads fetched spades and demolished the obstacles, blessings of Ganesh, while hundreds of children and parents stared. Soon we were threading our way along the two ruts of antiquity, women gazing wide-eyed from their hut doors, men trailing alongside and behind us, children scampering to swell the procession. Ours was perhaps the first auto to traverse these roads, the Bullock Cart Union must be omnipotent here. What a sensation we created! A group piloted by an American and pioneering in a snorting car right into their hamlet fastness, invading the ancient privacy and sanctity. Halting by a narrow lane, we found ourselves within a hundred feet of Giribala's ancestral home. We felt the thrill of fulfilment after the long road struggle crowned by a rough finish. We approached a large, two-storied building of brick and plaster, dominating the surrounding adobe huts. The house was under the process of repair, for around it 
there was the characteristically tropical framework of bamboo. With feverish anticipation and suppressed rejoicing, we stood before the open doors of the one blessed by the Lord's hungerless touch. Constantly agape were the villagers, young and old, bare and dressed, women aloof somewhat but inquisitive too, men and boys unabashedly at our heels as they gazed on this unprecedented spectacle. Soon a short figure came into view in the doorway, Giri Bala. She was swathed in a cloth of dull, goldish silk, in typically Indian fashion. She drew forward modestly and hesitatingly, peering at us from beneath the upper fold of her swadeshi cloth. Her eyes glistened like smouldering embers from the shadows of her headpiece. We were enamoured by a face of benevolence and self-realisation, free from the taint of earthly attachment. Meekly she approached and silently assented to our snapping a number of pictures with our still and movie cameras. Patiently and shyly, she endured our photo techniques of posture adjustment and light arrangement. Finally, we had recorded for posterity many photographs of the only woman in the world who is known to have lived without food or drink for over 50 years. Therese Neumann, of course, has fasted since 1923. Most motherly was Giri Bala's expression as she stood before us, completely covered in the loose-flowing cloth, nothing of her body visible but her face with its downcast eyes, her hands and her tiny feet. A face of rare peace and innocent poise, a wide, childlike, quivering lip, a feminine nose, narrow, sparkling eyes and a wistful smile. Mr. Wright's impression of Giribala was shared by me. Spirituality unfolded her like her gently shining veil. She pranamed before me in the customary gesture of greeting from a householder to a monk. Her simple charm and quiet smile gave us a welcome beyond that of honeyed oratory. Forgotten was our difficult, dusty trip. The little saint seated herself cross-legged on the veranda. Though bearing the scars of age, she was not emaciated. Her olive-coloured skin had remained clear and healthy in tone. Mother, I said in Bengali, for over twenty-five years I have thought eagerly of this very pilgrimage. I heard about your sacred life from Stiti Lal Nandi Babu. She nodded in acknowledgement. Yes, my good neighbour in Nawabganj. During those years I have crossed the oceans, but never forgot my plan some day to see you. The sublime drama that you are here playing so inconspicuously should be blazoned before a world that has long forgotten the inner food divine. The saint lifted her eyes for a minute, smiling with serene interest. Baba, honoured father, knows best, she answered meekly. I was happy that she had taken no offence. One never knows how yogis and yoginis will react to the thought of publicity. They shun it as a rule, wishing to pursue in silence the profound soul research. An inner sanction comes to them when the proper time arrives to display their lives openly for the benefit of seeking minds. Mother, I went on, forgive me then for burdening you with many questions. Kindly answer only those that please you. I shall understand your silence also. 
She spread her hands in a gracious gesture. I'm glad to reply, insofar as an insignificant person like myself can give satisfactory answers. Oh, no, not insignificant, I protested sincerely. You are a great soul. I am the humble servant of all. She added quaintly, I love to cook and to feed people. A strange pastime, I thought, for a non-eating saint. Tell me, mother, from your own lips, do you live without food? That is true. She was silent for a few moments. Her next remark showed that she had been struggling with mental arithmetic. From the age of twelve years, four months, down to my present age of sixty-eight, a period of over fifty-six years, I have not eaten food or taken liquids. Are you never tempted to eat? If I felt a craving for food, I would have to eat. Simply, yet regally, she stated this axiomatic truth, one known too well by a world revolving round three meals a day. But you do eat something. My tone held a note of remonstrance. Of course, she smiled in swift understanding, your nourishment is derived from the finer energies of the air and sunlight, and from the cosmic power that recharges your body through the medulla oblongata. Barbara knows. Again she acquiesced, her manner soothing and unemphatic. Mother, please tell me about your early life. It holds a deep interest for all of India, and even for our brothers and sisters beyond the seas. Giribala put aside her habitual reserve, relaxing into a conversational mood. So be it. Her voice was low and firm. I was born in these forest regions. My childhood was unremarkable, save that I was possessed by an insatiable appetite. I had been betrothed when I was about nine years old. Child, my mother often warned me, try to control your greed. When the time comes for you to live among strangers in your husband's family, what will they think of you if your days are spent in nothing but eating? The calamity she had foreseen came to pass. I was only twelve when I joined my husband's people in Nawabganj. My mother-in-law shamed me morning, noon, and night about my gluttonous habits. Her scoldings were a blessing in disguise, however. They roused my dormant spiritual tendencies. One morning her ridicule was merciless. I shall soon prove to you, I said, stung to the quick, that I shall never touch food again as long as I live. My mother-in-law laughed in derision. So, she said, how can you live without eating when you cannot live without overeating? This remark was unanswerable, yet an iron resolution had entered my heart. In a secluded spot I sought my heavenly father. Lord, I prayed incessantly, please send me a guru, one who can teach me to live by thy light and not by food. An ecstasy fell over me. In a beatific spell, I set out for the Nawab Ganjgat on the Ganges. On the way, I encountered the priest of my husband's family. Venerable sir, I said trustingly, kindly tell me how to live without eating. He stared at me without reply. Finally he spoke in a consoling manner. Child, he said, come to the temple this evening. I will conduct a special Vedic ceremony for you. This vague answer was not the one I was seeking. 
I continued toward the gut. The morning sun pierced the waters. I purified myself in the Ganges, as though for a sacred initiation. As I left the river bank, my wet cloth around me, in the broad glare of day, my master materialized himself before me. Dear little one, he said in a voice of loving compassion, I am the guru sent here by God to fulfill your urgent prayer. He was deeply touched by its very unusual nature. From today you shall live by the astral light. Your bodily atoms shall be recharged by the infinite current. Giribala fell into silence. I took Mr. Wright's pencil and pad and translated into English a few items for his information. The saint resumed the tale, a gentle voice barely audible. The ghat was deserted, but my guru cast around us an aura of guarding light that no stray bathers later disturb us. He initiated me into a clear technique that frees the body from dependence on the gross food of mortals. The technique includes the use of a certain mantra and a breathing exercise more difficult than the average person could perform. No medicine or magic is involved, nothing beyond the Kriya. In the manner of the American newspaper reporter who had unknowingly taught me his procedure, I questioned Giribala on many matters that I thought would be of interest to the world. She gave me, bit by bit, the following information. I have never had any children. Many years ago I became a widow. I sleep very little, as sleep and waking are the same to me. I meditate at night, attending to my domestic duties in the daytime. I slightly feel the change in climate from season to season. I have never been sick or experienced any disease. I feel only slight pain when accidentally injured. I have no bodily excretions. I can control my heartbeat and breathing. In visions, I often see my guru and other great souls. Mother, I asked, why don't you teach others the method of living without food? My ambitious hopes for the world's starving millions were quickly shattered. No, she shook her head. I was strictly commanded by my guru not to divulge the secret. It is not his wish to tamper with God's drama of creation. The farmers would not thank me if I taught many people to live without eating. The luscious fruits would lie useless on the ground. It appears that misery, starvation and disease are whips of our karma that ultimately drive us to seek the true meaning of life. Mother, I said slowly, what is the use of your having been singled out to live without eating? To prove that man is spirit, her face lit with wisdom, to demonstrate that by divine advancement he can gradually learn to live by the eternal light and not by food. The saint sank into a deep meditative state. Her gaze was directed inward. The gentle depths of her eyes became expressionless. She gave a certain sigh, the prelude to the ecstatic breathless trance. For a time she had fled to the questionless realm, the heaven of inner joy. The tropical darkness had fallen. The light of a small kerosene lamp flickered fitfully over the heads of many villagers squatting silently in the shadows. The darting glowworms and distant oil lanterns of the huts wove bright eerie patterns into the velvet night.
It was the painful hour of parting. A slow, tedious journey lay before our little party. Giri Bala, I said as the saint opened her eyes, please give me a keepsake, a strip from one of your saris. She soon returned with a piece of Banaras silk, extending it in her hands as she suddenly prostrated herself on the ground. Mother, I said reverently, rather let me touch your own blessed feet. Chapter 47 I return to the West. I have given many yoga lessons in India and America, but I must confess that, as a Hindu, I am unusually happy to be conducting a class for English students. My London class members laughed appreciatively. No political turmoils ever disturbed our yoga peace. India was now a hallowed memory. It is September 1936, I am in England to fulfil a promise, given sixteen months earlier, to lecture again in London. England, too, is receptive to the timeless yoga message. Reporters and newsreel cameramen swarmed over my quarters at Grosvenor House. The British National Council of the World Fellowship of Faiths organised a meeting on September the 29th at Whitefield Congregational Church, where I addressed the audience on the weighty subject of how faith in fellowship may save civilization. The eight o'clock lectures at Caxton Hall attracted such crowds that on two nights the overflow waited in Windsor House Auditorium for my second talk at 9.30. Yoga classes during the following weeks grew so large that Mr. Wright was obliged to arrange a transfer to another hall. English tenacity has an admirable expression in a spiritual relationship. The London yoga students loyally organised themselves after my departure into a self-realisation fellowship centre, holding their meditation meetings weekly throughout the bitter war years. Unforgettable weeks in England, days of sightseeing in London, then over the beautiful countryside. Mr Wright and I used the trusty Ford to visit the birthplaces and tombs of the great poets and heroes of British history. Our little party sailed from Southampton for America in late October on the Bremen. The sight of the majestic Statue of Liberty in New York Harbour brought to our throats joyous emotional gulps. The Ford, a bit battered from struggles over ancient soils, was still puissant. It now took in its stride the transcontinental trip to California. In late 1936, low Mount Washington Centre. The year-end holidays are celebrated annually at the Los Angeles Centre with an eight-hour group meditation on December 24th, Spiritual Christmas, followed the next day by a banquet, Social Christmas. The festivities this year were augmented by the presence of dear friends and students from distant cities who had arrived to welcome home the three world travellers. The Christmas Day feast included delicacies brought 15,000 miles for this glad occasion. Gucci mushrooms from Kashmir, canned rasagulla and mango pulp, papar biscuits and an oil of the Indian kiora flour for flavouring ice cream. The evening found us grouped around a huge, sparkling Christmas tree, the nearby fireplace crackling with logs of aromatic cypress. Gift time! 
presence from the earth's far corners, Palestine, Egypt, India, England, France, Italy. How laboriously had Mr. Wright counted the trunks at each foreign junction, that no pilfering hand received the treasures intended for loved ones in America. Plaques of the sacred olive tree from the Holy Land, delicate laces and embroideries from Belgium and Holland, Persian carpets, finely woven cashmere shawls, everlastingly fragrant sandalwood trays from Mysore, Shiva bull's-eye stones from central provinces, Indian coins of dynasties long fled, bejeweled vases and cups, miniatures, tapestries, temple incense and perfumes, Swadeshi cotton prints, lacquer work, Mysore ivory carvings, Persian slippers with their inquisitive long toe, quaint old illuminated manuscripts, velvets, brocades, Gandhi caps, potteries, tiles, brasswork, prayer rugs, booty of three continents. One by one, I distributed the gaily wrapped packages from the immense pile under the tree. Sister Guiana Marta, I handed a long box to the saintly American lady of sweet visage and deep realization who, during my absence, had been in charge at the Mount Washington Center. From the paper tissue, she lifted a sari of golden Banaras silk. Thank you, sir. It brings before my eyes the pageant of India. Mr. Dickinson, the next parcel contained a gift that I had bought in a Calcutta bazaar. Mr. Dickinson will like this, I had thought at the time. A beloved disciple, Mr. E. E. Dickinson, had been present at every Christmas festivity since the 1925 founding of the Mount Washington Center. At this eleventh annual celebration, he stood before me, untying the ribbons of an oblong package. The silver cup. Struggling with emotion, he stared at the present, a tall drinking cup. He seated himself some distance away, apparently in a daze. I smiled at him affectionately, before resuming my role as Santa Claus. The ejaculatory evening closed with a prayer to the giver of all gifts, then a group singing of Christmas carols. Mr. Dickinson and I were chatting together some time later. Sir, he said, Please let me thank you now for the silver cup. I could not find any words on Christmas night. I brought the gift especially for you. For forty-three years I have been waiting for that silver cup. It is a long story, one I have kept hidden within me. Mr. Dickinson looked at me shyly. The beginning was dramatic. I was drowning. My older brother had playfully pushed me into a fifteen-foot pool in a small town in Nebraska. I was only five years old then. As I was about to sink for the second time under the water, a dazzling, multicolored light appeared, filling all space. In the midst was the figure of a man, with tranquil eyes and a reassuring smile. My body was sinking for the third time, when one of my brother's companions bent a tall, slender willow tree in such a low dip that I could grasp it with my desperate fingers. The boys lifted me to the bank and successfully gave me first aid treatment. Twelve years later, a youth of seventeen, I visited Chicago with my mother. It was September, 1893. The great World Parliament of Religions was in session. Mother and I were walking down a main street, when again 
I saw the mighty flash of light. A few paces away, strolling leisurely along, was the same man I had seen years before in vision. He approached a large auditorium and vanished within the door. Mother, I cried, that was the man who appeared at the time I was drowning. She and I hastened into the building. The man was seated on a lecture platform. We soon learned that he was Swami Vivekananda of India. After he had given a soul-stirring talk, I went forward to meet him. He smiled on me, graciously, as though we were old friends. I was so young that I did not know how to give expression to my feelings, but in my heart I was hoping that he would offer to be my teacher. He read my thought. No, my son, I am not your guru. Vivekananda gazed with his beautiful piercing eyes deep into my own. Your teacher will come later. He will give you a silver cup. After a little pause, he added, smiling, he will pour out to you more blessings than you are now able to hold. I left Chicago in a few days, Mr. Dickinson went on, and never saw the great Vivekananda again. But every word he had uttered was indelibly written on my inmost consciousness. Years passed. No teacher appeared. One night in 1925, I prayed deeply that the Lord would send me my guru. A few hours later, I was awakened from sleep by soft strains of melody. A band of celestial beings carrying flutes and other instruments came before my view. After filling the air with glorious music, the angels slowly vanished. The next evening I attended for the first time one of your lectures here in Los Angeles and knew then that my prayer had been granted. We smiled at each other in silence. For eleven years now, I have been your Kriya Yoga disciple, Mr. Dickinson continued. Sometimes I wondered about the silver cup. I had almost persuaded myself that the words of Vivekananda were only metaphorical. But on Christmas night, as you handed me the little box by the tree, I saw, for the third time in my life, the same dazzling flash of light. In another minute, I was gazing on my Guru's gift that Vivekananda had foreseen for me forty-three years earlier, a silver cup. Chapter 48 At Encinitas in California A surprise, sir! During your absence abroad, we have had this Encinitas hermitage built. It is a welcome home gift. Mr. Lin, Sister Gianna Marta, Durga Ma, and a few other devotees smilingly led me through a gate and up a tree-shaded walk. I saw a building jutting out like a great white ocean liner towards the blue brine. First speechlessly, then with oohs and ahs, finally with man's insufficient vocabulary of joy and gratitude, I examined the ashram. Sixteen unusually large rooms, each one charmingly appointed. The stately central hall, with immense ceiling-high windows, looks out on an altar of grass, ocean and sky, a symphony in emerald, opal and sapphire. A mantle over the huge fireplace of the hall holds pictures of Christ, Babaji, Lahiri Mahashai, 
and Sri Yukteswar, bestowing, I feel, their blessings on this tranquil western ashram. Directly below the hall, built into the very bluff, two meditation caves confront the infinities of sky and sea. On the grounds are sunbathing nooks, flagstone paths leading to quiet arbours, rose gardens, a eucalyptus grove, and a fruit orchard. May the good and heroic souls of the saints come here. So reads a prayer for a dwelling from the Zend Avesta that hangs on one of the hermitage doors. And may they go hand in hand with us, giving the healing virtues of their blessed gifts that are as ample as the earth, as high-reaching as the heavens. The large estate in Encinitas, California, is a gift to Self-Realization Fellowship from Mr. James J. Lin, a faithful Kriya Yogi since his initiation in January 1932. An American businessman of endless responsibilities, as head of vast oil interests and as president of the world's largest reciprocal fire insurance exchange, Mr. Lin nevertheless finds time daily for long and deep Kriya Yoga meditation. Leading thus a balanced life, he has attained in Samadhi the grace of unshakable peace. During my stay in India and Europe, June 1935 to October 1936, Mr. Lin had lovingly plotted with my correspondence in California to prevent any word from reaching me about the construction of the ashram in Encinitas. Astonishment, delight. During my earlier years in America, I had combed the coast of California in quest of a small site for a seaside ashram. Whenever I had found a suitable location, some obstacle had invariably arisen to thwart me. Gazing now over the sunny acres in Encinitas, I humbly saw the fulfillment of Sri Yukteswar's long-ago prophecy, a retreat by the ocean. A few months later, Easter of 1937, I conducted on the lawn of the new ashram the first of many Easter sunrise services. Like the Magi of old, several hundred students gazed in devotional awe at the daily miracle, the awakening solar rite in the eastern sky. To the west lay the Pacific Ocean, booming its solemn praise. In the distance, a tiny white sailing boat and the lonely flight of a seagull. Christ, thou art risen. Not with the vernal sun alone, but in spirit's eternal dawn. Many happy months went by. In the Encinitas setting of perfect beauty, I completed a long projected work, Cosmic Chants. I gave English words and Western musical notation to many Indian songs. Included was Shankara's chant, No birth, no death. The Sanskrit, Hymn to Brahma, Tagore's, Who is in my temple, and a number of my compositions. I will be thine always, in the land beyond my dreams. I give you my soul call. Come listen to my soul song, and in the temple of silence. In the preface to the songbook, I recounted my first outstanding experience with Western reaction to Eastern chants. The occasion had been a public lecture, the time 
April 18, 1926. The place, Carnegie Hall in New York. On April the 17th, I had confided to an American student, Mr. Alvin Hunsicker, I am planning to ask the audience to sing an old Hindu chant, O God Beautiful. Mr. Hunsicker had protested that Oriental songs are not easily understood by Americans. Music is a universal language, I had replied. Americans will not fail to feel the soul aspiration in this lofty chant. The following night, the devotional strains of O God Beautiful had come for over an hour from three thousand throats. Blase no longer, dear New Yorkers, your hearts had soared out in a simple peon of rejoicing. Divine healings had taken place that evening among the devotees chanting with love the Lord's blessed name. In 1941, I paid a visit to the Self-Realization Fellowship Center in Boston. The Boston Center leader, Dr. M. W. Lewis, lodged me in an artistically decorated suite. Sir, Dr. Lewis said, smiling, during your early years in America, you stayed in this city in a single room, without bath. I wanted you to know that Boston boasts some luxurious apartments. Happy years in California sped by, filled with activity. A self-realization fellowship colony in Encinitas was established in 1937. The numerous activities at the colony give many-sided training to disciples in accordance with self-realization fellowship ideals. Fruits and vegetables are grown for the use of residents of the Encinitas and Los Angeles centers. He hath made of one blood all nations of men. World brotherhood is a large term, but man must enlarge his sympathies, considering himself in the light of a world citizen. He who truly understands that it is my America, my India, my Philippines, my Europe, my Africa, and so on, will never lack scope for a useful and happy life. Though the body of Sri Yukteswar never dwelt on any soil except India's, he knew this brotherly truth. The world is my homeland. Chapter 49 The Years 1940-1951 We have indeed learned the value of meditation, and know that nothing can disturb our inner peace. In the last few weeks during the meetings, we have heard air raid warnings and listened to the explosions of delayed action bombs, but our students still gather and thoroughly enjoy our beautiful service. This brave message, written by the leader of the London Self-Realization Fellowship Centre, was one of many letters sent to me from war-ravaged England and Europe during the years that preceded America's entry into World War II. Dr. L. Cranmer Bing of London, noted editor of the Wisdom of the East series, wrote me in 1942 as follows. When I read East-West, I realize how far apart we seem to be, apparently living in two different worlds. Beauty, order, calm and peace come to me from Los Angeles, sailing into port as a vessel laden with the blessings and comfort of the Holy Grail, 
to a beleaguered city. I see as in a dream your palm tree grove, and the temple in Encinitas, with its ocean stretches and mountain views, and above all its fellowship of spiritually minded men and women, a community comprehended in unity, absorbed in creative work, and replenished in contemplation. Greetings to all the fellowship from a common soldier, written on the watchtower, waiting for the dawn. A church of all religions in Hollywood, California, was built by self-realization fellowship workers and dedicated in 1942. A year later, another temple was founded in San Diego, California, and in 1947, one in Long Beach, California. One of the most beautiful estates in the world, a floral wonderland in the Pacific Palisades section of Los Angeles, was donated in 1949 to Self-Realization Fellowship. The ten-acre site is a natural amphitheater, surrounded by verdant hills, a large natural lake, a blue jewel in a mountain diadem, has given the estate its name of Lake Shrine. A quaint Dutch windmill house on the grounds contains a peaceful chapel. Near a sunken garden, a large water wheel splashes a leisurely music. Two marble statues from China adorn the site, a statue of Lord Buddha and one of Quan Yin, the Chinese personification of the Divine Mother. A life-size statue of Christ its serene face and flowing robes, strikingly illuminated at night, stands on a hill above a waterfall. A Mahatma Gandhi World Peace Memorial at the Lake Shrine was dedicated in 1950, the year that marked the 30th anniversary of Self-Realization Fellowship in America. A portion of the Mahatma's ashes, sent from India, was enshrined in a thousand-year-old stone sarcophagus. A Self-Realization Fellowship India Center in Hollywood was founded in 1951. Mr. Goodwin J. Knight, Lieutenant Governor of California, and Mr. M. R. Ahuja, Consul General of India, joined me in the dedicatory services. On the site is India Hall, an auditorium seating 250 persons. Newcomers to the various centers often want further light on yoga, a question I sometimes hear is this. Is it true, as certain organizations state, that yoga may not be successfully studied in printed form, but should be pursued only with the guidance of a nearby teacher? In the atomic age, yoga should be taught by a method of instruction such as the self-realization fellowship lessons, or the liberating science will again be restricted to a chosen few. It would indeed be a priceless boon if each student could keep by his side a guru perfected in divine wisdom. But the world is composed of many sinners and few saints. How then may the multitudes be helped by yoga, if not through study in their homes of instructions written by true yogis? The only alternative is that the average man be ignored and left without yoga knowledge. Such is not God's plan for the new age. Babaji has promised to guard and guide all sincere Kriya yogis in their path toward the goal. Hundreds of thousands, not dozens merely, of Kriya yogis are needed to bring into manifestation 
the world of peace and plenty that awaits men when they have made the proper effort to re-establish their status as sons of the Divine Father. The founding in the West of a Self-Realization Fellowship Organization, a hive for the spiritual honey, was a duty enjoined on me by Sri Yukteswar and Mahavatar Babaji. The fulfillment of the sacred trust has not been devoid of difficulties. Tell me truly, Paramahamsaji, has it been worth it? This laconic question was put to me one evening by Dr. Lloyd Cannell, a leader of the temple in San Diego. I understood him to mean, Have you been happy in America? What about the falsehoods circulated by misguided people who are anxious to prevent the spread of yoga? What about the disillusionments, the heartaches, the center leaders who could not lead, the students who could not be taught? Blessed is the man whom the Lord doth test, I answered. He has remembered now and then to put a burden on me. I thought then of all the faithful ones, of the love and devotion and understanding that illumines the heart of America. With slow emphasis I went on, but my answer is yes, a thousand times yes, it has been worthwhile, more than I ever dreamed, to see East and West brought closer in the only lasting bond, the spiritual. The great masters of India who have shown keen interest in the West have well understood modern conditions. They know that until there is better assimilation in all nations of the distinctive Eastern and Western virtues, world affairs cannot improve. Each hemisphere needs the best offerings of the other. In the course of world travel, I have sadly observed much suffering. In the Orient, suffering chiefly on the material plane. In the Occident, misery chiefly on the mental or the spiritual plane. All nations feel the painful effects of unbalanced civilizations. India and many other eastern lands can greatly benefit from emulation of the practical grasp of affairs, the material efficiency of western nations like America. The occidental peoples, on the other hand, require a deeper understanding of the spiritual basis of life, and particularly of scientific techniques that India anciently developed for man's conscious communion with God. The ideal of a well-rounded civilization is not a chimerical one. For millenniums, India was a land of both spiritual light and widespread material prosperity. The poverty of the last two hundred years is, in India's long history, only a passing karmic phase. A byword in the world, century after century, was the riches of the Indies. Abundance, material as well as spiritual, is a structural expression of rita, cosmic law, or natural righteousness. There is no parsimony in the divine, nor in its goddess of phenomena, exuberant nature. The Hindu scriptures teach that man is attracted to this particular earth to learn, more completely in each successive life, the infinite ways in which the spirit may be expressed through and dominant over material conditions.
East and West, are learning this great truth in different ways, and should gladly share with each other their discoveries. Beyond all doubt, it is pleasing to the Lord when His earth children struggle to attain a world civilization free from poverty, disease, and soul ignorance. Man's forgetfulness of his divine resources, the result of his misuse of free will, is the root cause of all other forms of suffering. The ills attributed to an anthropomorphic abstraction called society may be laid more realistically at the door of every man. Utopia must spring in the private bosom before it can flower in civic virtue, inner reforms leading naturally to outer ones. A man who has reformed himself will reform thousands. The time-tested scriptures of the world are one in essence, inspiring man on his upward journey. One of the happiest periods of my life was spent in dictating for Self-Realization magazine my interpretation of part of the New Testament. Fervently, I implored Christ to guide me in divining the true meaning of his words, many of which have been grievously misunderstood for twenty centuries. One night, while I was engaged in silent prayer, my sitting-room in the Encinitas Hermitage became filled with an opal-blue light. I beheld the radiant form of the blessed Lord Jesus. A young man, he seemed, of about twenty-five, with a sparse beard and moustache, his long black hair parted in the middle, was haloed by a shimmering gold. His eyes were eternally wondrous. As I gazed, they were infinitely changing. With each divine transition in their expression, I intuitively understood the wisdom conveyed. In his glorious gaze, I felt the power that upholds the myriad worlds. A holy grail appeared at his mouth. It came down to my lips and then returned to Jesus. After a few moments, he uttered beautiful words, so personal in their nature that I keep them in my heart. I spent much time in 1950 and 1951 at a tranquil retreat near the Mojave Desert in California. There I translated the Bhagavad Gita and wrote a detailed commentary that presents the various paths of yoga. Twice referring explicitly to a yogic technique, the only one mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita and the same one that Babaji named simply Kriya Yoga, India's greatest scripture has thus offered practical as well as moral teaching. In the ocean of our dream world, the breath is the specific storm of delusion that produces the consciousness of individual waves, the forms of men and of all other material objects. Knowing that mere philosophical and ethical knowledge is insufficient to rouse man from his painful dream of separate existence, Lord Krishna pointed out the holy science by which the yogi may master his body and convert it, at will, into pure energy. The possibility of this yogic feat is not beyond the theoretical comprehension of modern scientists, pioneers in an atomic age. All matter has been proved to be reducible to energy. The Hindu scriptures 
extol the yogic science because it is employable by mankind in general. The mystery of breath, it is true, has occasionally been solved without the use of formal yoga techniques, as in the cases of non-Hindu mystics who possessed transcendent powers of devotion to the Lord. Such Christian, Muslim, and other saints have indeed been observed in the breathless and motionless trance. Sabikalpa Samadhi without which no man has entered the first stages of God-perception. After a saint has reached Nirbikalpa, or the highest Samadhi, however, he is irrevocably established in the Lord, whether he be breathless or breathing, motionless or active. Brother Lawrence, the 17th century Christian mystic, tells us his first glimpse of God-realization came about by viewing a tree. Nearly all human beings have seen a tree, few, alas, have thereby seen the tree's creator. Most men are utterly incapable of summoning those irresistible powers of devotion that are effortlessly possessed only by a few ekantins, single-hearted saints, found in all religious paths, whether of east or west. Yet the ordinary man is not therefore shut out from the possibility of divine communion. He needs for soul recollection, no more than the Kriya Yoga technique, a daily observance of the moral precepts, and an ability to cry sincerely, Lord, I yearn to know Thee. The universal appeal of yoga is thus its approach to God through a daily usable scientific method, rather than through a devotional fervour that, for the average man, is beyond his emotional scope. Various great Jain teachers of India have been called Tithakaras, ford-makers, because they reveal the passage by which bewildered humanity may cross over and beyond the stormy seas of samsara, the karmic wheel, the recurrence of lives and deaths. Samsara, literally, a flowing with the phenomenal flux, induces man to take the line of least resistance. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James 4, 4. To become the friend of God, man must overcome the devils or evils of his own karma or actions that ever urge him to spineless acquiescence in the mayic delusions of the world. A knowledge of the iron law of karma encourages the earnest seeker to find the way of final escape from its bonds. Because the karmic slavery of human beings is rooted in the desires of maya-darkened minds, it is with mind control that the yogi concerns himself. The various cloaks of karmic ignorance are laid away, and man views himself in his native essence. The mystery of life and death, whose solution is the only purpose of man's sojourn on earth, is intimately interwoven with breath. Breathlessness is deathlessness. Realizing this truth, the ancient rishis of India seized on the sole clue of the breath and developed a precise and rational science of breathlessness. Had India no other gift for the world, Kriya Yoga alone would suffice as a kingly offering. The Bible contains passages which reveal that the Hebrew prophets were well aware that God has made the breath to serve as the subtle link between body and soul. Genesis states, The Lord God 
formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The human body is composed of chemical and metallic substances that are also found in the dust of the ground. The flesh of man could never carry on activity or manifest energy and motion were it not for the life currents transmitted by soul to body through the instrumentality, in unenlightened men, of the breath. Gaseous energy. The life currents operating in the human body as the fivefold prana or subtle life energies are an expression of the om, vibration of the omnipresent soul. The reflection, the very similitude of life that shines in the fleshly cells from the soul source is the only cause of man's attachment to his body. Obviously, he would not pay solicitous homage to a clod of clay. A human being falsely identifies himself with his physical form because the life currents from the soul are breath-conveyed into the flesh with such intense power that man mistakes the effect for a cause and idolatrously imagines the body to have life of its own. Man's conscious state is an awareness of body and breath. His subconscious state, active in sleep, is associated with his mental and temporary separation from body and breath. His superconscious state is a freedom from the delusion that existence depends on body and breath. God lives without breath. The soul made in his image becomes conscious of itself for the first time only during the breathless state. When the breath link between soul and body is severed by evolutionary karma, the abrupt transition called death ensues. The physical cells revert to their natural powerlessness. For the Kriya Yogi, however, the breath link is severed at will by scientific wisdom, not by the rude intrusion of karmic necessity. Through actual experience, the Yogi is already aware of his essential incorporeity, and does not require the somewhat pointed hint given by death that man is badly advised to place his reliance on a physical body. Life by life, each man progresses at his own pace, be it ever so erratic, toward the goal of his own apotheosis. Death, no interruption in this onward sweep, simply offers man the more congenial environment of an astral world in which to purify his dross. Let not your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions. John 14, 1-2 It is indeed unlikely that God has exhausted his ingenuity in organizing this world, or that in the next world he will offer nothing more challenging to our interest than the strumming of harps. Death is not a blotting out of existence, a final escape from life, nor is death the door to immortality. He who has fled his self in earthly joys will not recapture it amidst the gossamer charms of an astral world. There he merely accumulates finer perceptions and more sensitive responses to the beautiful and the good which are one. It is on the anvil of this gross earth that struggling man must hammer out the imperishable gold of spiritual identity. Bearing in his hand the hard-won golden treasure as the sole acceptable gift to greedy death, a human being wins final freedom 
from the rounds of physical reincarnation. For several years, I conducted classes in Encinitas and Los Angeles on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and other profound works of Hindu philosophy. Why did God ever join soul and body? A class student asked one evening. What was his purpose in setting into initial motion this evolutionary drama of creation? Countless other men have posed such questions. Philosophers have sought in vain fully to answer them. Leave a few mysteries to explore in eternity, Sri Yukteswar used to say with a smile. How could man's limited reasoning powers comprehend the inconceivable motives of the uncreated absolute? The rational faculty in men, tethered by the cause-effect principle of the phenomenal world, is baffled before the enigma of God, the beginningless, the uncaused. Nevertheless, though man's reason cannot fathom the riddles of creation, every mystery will ultimately be solved for the devotee by God himself. He who sincerely yearns for wisdom is content to start his search by humbly mastering a few simple ABCs of the divine schema, not demanding prematurely a precise mathematical graph of life's Einstein theory. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. John 1.18 No man hath seen God at any time, no mortal under time, the relativities of Maya, can realize the infinite. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, the reflected Christ consciousness or outwardly projected perfect intelligence that, guiding all structural phenomena through om vibration, has issued forth from the bosom or deeps of the uncreated divine in order to express the variety of unity. He hath declared subjected to form or manifested, him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus explained, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. The threefold nature of God, as he demonstrates himself in the phenomenal worlds, is symbolized in Hindu scriptures as Brahma, the Creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer-renovator. Their triune activities are ceaselessly displayed throughout vibratory creation. As the Absolute is beyond the conceptual powers of man, the devout Hindu worships it in the august embodiments of the Trinity. The universal, creative, preservative, destructive aspect of God, however, is not his ultimate or even his essential nature, for cosmic creation is only his lila, creative sport. His intrinsicality cannot be grasped even by grasping all the mysteries of the Trinity because his outer nature, as manifested in the lawful atomic flux, merely expresses him without revealing him. The final nature of the Lord is known only when the Son ascends to the Father. The liberated man overpasses the vibratory realms and enters the vibrationless original. All great prophets have remained silent 
when requested to unveil the ultimate secrets. When Pilate asked, what is truth? Christ made no reply. The large, ostentatious questions of intellectualists like Pilate seldom proceed from a burning spirit of inquiry. Such men speak rather with the empty arrogance that considers a lack of conviction about spiritual values to be a sign of open-mindedness. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. In these few words Christ spoke volumes. A child of God bears witness by his life. He embodies truth, if he expound it also, that is generous redundancy. Truth is no theory, no speculative system of philosophy, no intellectual insight. Truth is exact correspondence with reality. For man, truth is unshakable knowledge of his real nature, his self as soul. Jesus, by every act and word of his life, proved that he knew the truth of his being, his source in God. Wholly identified with the omnipresent Christ consciousness, he could say with simple finality, Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Buddha, too, refused to shed light on the metaphysical ultimates, dryly pointing out that man's few moments on earth are best employed in perfecting the moral nature. The Chinese mystic Lao Tzu rightly taught, He who knows tells it not, he who tells knows it not. The final mysteries of God are not open to discussion. The decipherment of his secret code is an art that man cannot communicate to man. Here the Lord alone is the teacher. Be still and know that I am God. Never flaunting his omnipresence, the Lord is heard only in the immaculate silences, reverberating throughout the universe as the creative om vibration, the primal sound, instantly translates itself into intelligible words for the devotee in attunement. The divine purpose of creation, so far as man's reason can grasp it, is expounded in the Vedas. The Rishis taught that each human being has been created by God as a soul that will uniquely manifest some special attribute of the infinite before resuming its absolute identity. All men, endowed thus with a facet of divine individuality, are equally dear to God. The wisdom garnered by India, the eldest brother among the nations, is a heritage of all mankind. Vedic truth, as all truth, belongs to the Lord and not to India. The Rishis, whose minds were pure receptacles to receive the divine profundities of the Vedas, were members of the human race, born on this earth rather than on some other, to serve humanity as a whole. Distinctions by race or nation are meaningless in the realm of truth, where the only qualification is spiritual fitness to receive. God is love. His plan for creation can be rooted only in love. Does not that simple thought 
rather than erudite reasonings, offer solace to the human heart? Every saint who has penetrated to the core of reality has testified that a divine universal plan exists and that it is beautiful and full of joy. To the prophet Isaiah, God revealed his intentions in these words. So shall my word, creative om, be, that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy, and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Ye shall go out with joy, and be led forth with peace. The men of a hard-pressed twentieth century hear longingly that wondrous promise. The full truth within it is realizable by every devotee of God who strives manfully to repossess his divine heritage. The blessed role of Kriya Yoga in East and West has hardly more than just begun. May all men come to know that there exists a definite scientific technique of self-realization for the overcoming of all human misery. In sending loving thought vibrations to the thousands of Kriya Yogis scattered like shining jewels over the earth, I often think gratefully, Lord, Thou hast given this monk a large family. Afterward Paramahansa Yogananda entered Mahasamadhi, a yogi's final conscious exit from the body, in Los Angeles, California, on March the 7th, 1952, after concluding his speech at a banquet held in honor of His Excellency Binay R. Sen, Ambassador of India. The great world teacher demonstrated the value of yoga, scientific techniques for God-realization, not only in life, but in death. Weeks after his departure, his unchanged face shone with the divine luster of incorruptibility. Mr. Harry T. Rowe, Los Angeles Mortuary Director, Forest Lawn Memorial Park, in which the body of the Great Master is temporarily placed, sent Self-Realization Fellowship a notarized letter from which the following extracts are taken. The absence of any visual signs of decay in the dead body of Paramahansa Yogananda offers the most extraordinary case in our experience. No physical disintegration was visible in his body even twenty days after death. No indication of mould was visible on his skin and no visible desiccation, drying up, took place in the bodily tissues. This state of perfect preservation of a body is, so far as we know from mortuary annals, an unparalleled one. At the time of receiving Yogananda's body, 
the mortuary personnel expected to observe, through the glass lid of the casket, the usual progressive signs of bodily decay. Our astonishment increased as day followed day without bringing any visible change in the body under observation. Yogananda's body was apparently in a phenomenal state of immutability. No odour of decay emanated from his body at any time. The physical appearance of Yogananda on March the 27th, just before the bronze cover of the casket was put into position, was the same as it had been on March the 7th. He looked, on March the 27th, as fresh and as unravaged by decay as he had looked on the night of his death. On March 27th, there was no reason to say that his body had suffered any visible physical disintegration at all. For these reasons, we state again that the case of Paramahansa Yogananda is unique in our experience. On March the 7th, 1977, the 25th anniversary of the Maha Samadhi of Paramahansa Yogananda, the Government of India issued this commemorative stamp in his honour. In a leaflet distributed by the Indian Posts and Telegraphs Department with the stamp and first-day covers, a biographical sketch concluded with these words. Though the major part of his life was spent outside India, still Paramahansa Yogananda takes his place among our great saints. His work continues to grow and shine ever more brightly, drawing people everywhere on the path of the pilgrimage of the Spirit. This concludes Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda.